Well, please turn with me in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verse 11 through 18. And we're looking at how Jesus breaks down the walls of division and the walls of hostility, and he unites people together under his name. Before we look at this text, it reminded me this week of between 1945 and 1989 in world history, we know about the Iron Curtain. And the Iron Curtain, it split Europe into east and to west, and the separation was physical, it was political, and it was spiritual. There was a great physical barrier in that there was a heavily militarized border that was cut like an ugly, jagged scar from the Baltic Sea in the north to the Adriatic Sea in the south. Politically, there was a wall that separated the communist east from the capitalist west, and it was a division that was epitomized by the infamous Berlin Wall that split East Berlin from West Berlin. And then spiritually, the Iron Curtain, it made it almost impossible for Christians to go into the communist, atheistic East area of Europe. And it made it very difficult because of this impenetrable wall that seemed to separate atheist, communist people uh, from that of the capitalist West. But from 1945 to 1989, this Iron Curtain, it separated families, it separated friends, nations, and languages, and it resulted in great animosity and hostility and enmity. It also resulted in distrust and in fear. But yet in 1989, something spectacular happened. It was really a a minor miracle, but it was two years after Ronald Reagan spoke to Gorbachev and He stood before the Berlin Wall, and what did he say? He said, tear down this wall. And citizens, a few years after that, from both East and West Berlin, they were literally uh, permitted to demolish the barrier and reunited this once divided people. It was a moment that world history will never forget, where you had two people that united once again as one. Now, although this was a historic moment, it doesn't pale in light of Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, we learn about two people groups that hated each other for centuries. They despised one another. Jews and Gentiles, there was this great wall of hostility, hostility, this great barrier that separated Jews and Gentiles. And as we look at Ephesians 2, I want you to think about the wall of hostility between these two groups, and I want you to think about the bridge of peace that Jesus brought. So look with me now, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. This is God's word. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The grass withers, withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. In this text, we see Paul wrote about two things. He wrote about the wall of hostility, and then he wrote about the bridge of peace that Jesus brings. In verses 14 and 16, we see the word hostility mentioned twice. The word hostility, it means enmity. It means enemy. It's the opposite of friendship. And the Jews and the Gentiles, they were people groups that despised one another for centuries. There was a great wall of division that separated the two people groups. There was a social barrier or a social wall. There was also a physical wall that separated them. And there was a spiritual wall that separated them. In verse 11, Paul mentioned this social wall that separated the two people groups. He said, therefore, remember that at one time, you, Gentile, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by which is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. To be called a group of uncircumcised people, it was considered a racial slur. It would be considered a slap in the face if you called somebody an uncircumcised person. Even David himself called Goliath the uncircumcised Philistine. Jews and Gentiles, they had this great social barrier between the two where they not only hated each other, but they would have little interaction with one another. It was taught that Jews believed that Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. <laughs> The Jews said this about Gentiles, the best of the serpents crush, the best of the Gentiles they kill. It was against the law for a Jewish person to help a Gentile woman give birth to a baby. Because if a Gentile woman was giving birth to a Gentile baby, they would be giving birth to a heathen. And so no Jew was to help a Gentile woman give birth to a baby. It was so bad that when a Jew would enter Palestine, he would often shake the dust off his sandals and of his clothing in order to be clean from the Gentile lands that he traveled through or the Gentile people that he talked to. When he went into the Holy Land, a Jewish male or a Jewish female would have to dust off the dirt, the uncleanliness of the Gentiles in order for them to be clean going into the holy city. You may not know this, but I kid you not. Whenever a Jewish man or woman would marry a Gentile man or woman, do you know what the family would do? They wouldn't have a wedding ceremony to celebrate. They would have a funeral. They would have a funeral saying, our Jewish son or our Jewish daughter left 
our faith and our tradition to go with the enemy. Could you imagine having an adult child who's having the, one of the biggest days of their lives getting married and you have a funeral instead? That's what took place. There was a great social wall, a social barrier that separated these Jews and Gentiles from one another. There wasn't just a social wall, there was also a physical wall, and it was a literal wall. Herod's temple, as he built the temple, there were different courts within the temple. You had the most holy place where one Levite priest was allowed to go in one time a year to pray and represent God's people and their sins so that God would forgive them. Outside of the most holy place, you had another place of worship where specific priest would go and worship. And then you had outside of that, the court of priests where all the Levite priests could go and worship. And these were Jewish priests that could go and worship around the temple. And then beyond the court of priests, you had the court of Israel where Jewish men could go and worship the Lord around the temple. And then beyond the court of Israel, you had the court of women where Jewish women would go and worship the Lord outside of the temple. When you study archaeology, beyond the court of women, which was the furthest part out from the most holy place in the temple, you had to walk five steps down, and then you had this five-foot barricade, this wall that was built around the temple courtyards. And outside of that wall, you would then go ten more steps down into the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles were only allowed to worship in that place. And they would have to look up from a distance. They were far off and they were able to worship God from a distance. There was an inscription from the temple that was found several years ago. And it was inscribed on it saying, no foreigner should climb or pass these walls into the temple courtyard, and if a foreigner does, they will be killed. So when Paul wrote the word wall of hostility in the section, he's referring to that barricade that separated Gentiles from Jews. There wasn't just a social barricade. There wasn't just a physical barricade. There was a great spiritual barricade, a spiritual wall that was in place. And Paul wrote about this in verse 12. He said, therefore, or he goes on in verse 12 by saying, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What Paul said here was there were four things that spiritually separated a Gentile from a Jew. The first thing he mentioned here is he said, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. Gentiles had no Christ. The word Christ means anointed one, it means Messiah. And Gentiles did not worship a Messiah. They didn't think they needed a savior. They didn't think a savior was coming, an anointed one was coming. So they had no Christ. They were separated from Christ. The second spiritual barrier for Gentiles was that they had no citizenship. Verse 12 went on to say they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. In the Old Testament, God established his own kingdom. And instead of having a democracy 
or a republic. God established a theocracy. Theos means God. And God established a theocracy where he was the governor. He was the president. He was the ruler. He was the king. And he established all these laws for his people to follow. Gentiles were not included in that citizenship. They had no citizenship. Gentiles had no Christ. They had no citizenship. They also had no covenant. Paul wrote on to say they were strangers to the covenants of promise. The Gentiles were foreigners to the covenants of God, to the promises of God. Where in the Old Testament, God promised his people, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you blessing. I, I call you to multiply and have dominion over my land. None of those promises were given to the Gentiles. They had no promise. They had no Christ. They had no citizenship. They had no covenant. And guess what else they didn't have? They had no confidence. Because when you don't have a Savior, a Christ, when you don't have a home, a place to call your home, a citizenship, when, <laughs> when you don't have promises of God to hold on to, what do you have? You have no hope. You're hopeless. And the Gentiles had no hope, and they were without God in the world. They were hopeless and helpless apart from a Savior. They believed in many pagan gods. We know even in Ephesus, the ancient wonder of the world, one of the seven most ancient wonders of the world was the Greek goddess Diana. Diana was a pagan god that many Gentiles bowed down to. They had no God. They had no hope. So not only did you have this social wall that separated the Jews and the Gentiles, you also had a physical wall, and most importantly, you had a spiritual wall. This was the greatest division of any people group throughout all of human history. The greatest division. But here's the good news about Jesus Christ. We go on to see in verse 13, hope, but now. A few weeks ago when we began to look at Ephesians 2, verses 3 and 4, I talked about two incredible words, but God. But God. Remember how I talked about how before God changed our lives and our hearts, we were dead in our sins. We were unfit for doing anything spiritually good. We loved to do bad things. We loved to do evil because our flesh was telling us to sin and to enjoy sin. We were living in our own sinful flesh and nature. But God, who is rich in love and mercy, what did he do? He grabbed a hold of our hearts, changed our minds. We've been transformed by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. Now, a few verses later, God talks about another contrast. He talks about two people groups who hated each other. And what does he say? He doesn't say, but God. He says, but now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. But now, what did Jesus do? He tore down the wall. He broke down the barrier and he, bring, he brought about peace. And the word peace 
Paul wrote four different times between verses 14 and 17. We're going to focus in on that. Four different times he uses the word peace. Verse 14, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The second time he uses peace is verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And the third and fourth time we see peace is verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Four times it mentions the word peace. What does Jesus do to bridge peace, to be the bridge of peace between these two groups that hated each other. Well, the first thing he did, verse 14 tells us, is he is peace. He represents peace. In Isaiah 9, it described how Jesus would come one day and how he would be the prince of peace. He is the prince of peace who brings peace on earth, And when he came to this earth over 2,000 years ago, he brought goodwill to men. In World War II, there was an example where Americans were fighting the Germans on farmland. And as they're shooting one another and killing each other, there was a brief moment where a German three-year-old girl got away from her dad, who was the farmer of the land... And she was scared to death, and she was running around in the middle of crossfire. And guess what happened? For a few minutes, the firing stopped. Because both enemies, they saw this sweet, innocent three-year-old girl. And they said, we can't kill her. This toddler, this nearly baby, brought peace for a few brief moments during a tumultuous time of war. In the same way, when Jesus came to this earth, what did he bring? He brought peace on earth. He brought peace because he is our peace. So that's one way he was able to tear down that great wall that separated these two people groups because he represents peace. He is peace. But the second thing we notice about Jesus and peace is that he makes peace. He isn't just peace, but he makes peace. And how does he make peace and bring about peace? Well, he shed his blood. It was through his blood that brought about peace. The only solution for divisions among men, the only solution for divisions among men is the removal of sin. And the only way you can remove sin is by shedding innocent blood. Jesus was innocent. He was 100% perfect. And he shed his blood so that we could be forgiven by an almighty God, the Father, who is wrathful and just and must punish our sins. And the way to satisfy his wrath and his justice is by shedding innocent blood. And Jesus shed his blood to pay for the penalty of us and to pay for our sins so that God the Father would forgive us and he would be united with us once again. 
It's by his blood that God reconciles us to God. It's by his blood that he reconciles two people groups who hate one another. He brings them together. Brian Chappell, he said it this way, to be in union with Christ means that his blood is our blood too. We are not merely the beneficiaries of the blood of his death. We are also the recipients of the blood of his life. His blood, his life flows through us. We are not merely forgiven of our sin. We are also filled with the benefits of his righteousness. When you think about the shedding of Jesus' blood, you think about two things. You think about death and you think about life. Jesus shed his blood, lost his blood, and died. In the same way, our old person, our old way of living, our, in our sinful dead state is now dead. But life also symbolize, or blood also symbolizes life. You can't live without blood. And because Jesus is united with us, we have life in us and power in us. And it's that peace that passes all understanding. So how does Jesus make peace? He shed his blood. You know what else he does or did to make peace? He fulfilled the law. Verse 14 and 15, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And what did he do? He abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He abolished the law. He not only fulfilled the law, but he abolished it. The great divide between Jews and Gentiles was the ceremonial and the civil laws of the Old Testament. When Jesus came and died, he fulfilled those laws. And so people no longer have to be circumcised to be set apart as the boundary marker of God's people. People no longer have to kill animals and shed their blood and offer sacrifices on the altar. Because Christ fulfilled that law. He ushered in a new covenant. And because of that, that very, that very thing, Gentiles now can be united to Jews. It's a beautiful thing. But he brought peace by abolishing the law. Jesus, he, he not only shed his blood, and he not only fulfilled the law, but the third thing he did to bring peace was he created one new man. Look again at verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Jesus took two enemies and he made them friends, all under his name. Jesus unifies people, period. He brings about people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different tribes and tongues and languages, and he unites them under him. That's why we sang the church's one foundation. Because earlier in this service, we sang the songs, there's elect from every tribes around the nations that represent the church. The church is one foundation in Jesus Christ. He brings people together, and he brings them into one man or one woman. Paul wrote this 
concept in Galatians 3.28 by saying, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3. Colossians 3, Paul told us to put off this old man and woman who were sinners and dead in our sinful state and put on the new man and woman who are in Christ and have been changed. And he said, but now you must put them all away, the old man, put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And here he mentions it again in verse 11. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. Christ takes two people groups and brings them into one under his name. And he says, you are my people You are Christian. You are under me. You represent the church. I love the song when you're taught as a kid, Jesus loves the little children. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. He does. He does. Jesus is peace. Jesus makes and brings peace. And the third thing we notice in this text is that Jesus preaches peace. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Those who are far off, the Gentiles, and those who are near, the Jews. He preached peace to them. The word preach is the Greek word evangelion, which is where we get the word evangelize, good news. Jesus preaches good news of peace. He tears down walls of hostility and division, and he reconciles people under his name. That's what he does. That's who he is. He is indeed the prince of peace. And just as Jesus preaches peace from those who are far off and those who are near. So we, his people, we, his church, are to do the same. We're to preach peace from those of different nations by either going on the mission field or encouraging people who are missionaries to reach the nations. That's why we have these flags around the room to remind us of our call for world missions. We are also called to preach to those who are near in our families, in our community, in this area. In the last few minutes of this sermon, I'm going to go off on a little tangent. Right now in America, we have a lot of unrest, a lot of division. And there's racial tensions that are taking place throughout our nation. As Christians, we need to be above those tensions. We don't need to engage in any kind of racism, but instead we need to follow the words of the Bible and promote peace and promote the love of Christ. Because after all, the only thing that will ultimately bring unity to this world is Jesus himself. 
And until more and more people come to faith in Christ, we're going to continue to see racial tensions heighten and racial division occur more and more and more. I hope all of you would agree with me with what I'm about to say. And that is white supremacy should not exist. White supremacy groups should, should be gone. What are we doing? Christians, we, have, we have, should have nothing to do with that. I would also say on the other end of things, we don't need to be involved in Black Lives Matter, that group. Black lives do matter, of course. We don't need to be involved in that movement. Because as you study that movement, you will find that the originators of that movement is a lesbian couple that started it. And there's a lot more on the agenda than just promoting black lives. There's a lot more harm than good as you study more and more of that movement. So please steer clear of that movement. Support black lives. Stay clear of the movement. The other thing I would say that is causing more harm than good is critical race theory. Critical race theory is not helping. It's hurting. Because it's putting down white people instead of building white people up. Christ is in the business of building black people up. He's in the business of building white people up and brown people up. Hispanics and Asians and Indians, Caucasians, blacks. Christ is in the business of building people up and lifting them up, not tearing them down. And critical race theory and the woke movement is tearing people down. Vody Bauckham, he said this in his book, Fault Lines. At the heart of the woke movement lies the ideas that the sin of racism is no longer to be understood as an individual sin. Instead, the term now incorporates the idea of institutional structural racism and its implications. Hence, America has sinned, and certain Americans have inherited that sin whether they know it or not. What he's saying here is whether we know it or not, we've inherited sin. Sin of racism. What I, what I don't like about the woke movement and critical race theory is it not only brings people down, but it takes away this idea of individual sin and makes it more corporate and national. For us to have revival, each one of us individually must repent of our sins. We need to focus on our sins and how we've wronged others. That's where I believe the woke movement has fallen short in many, many ways. So here's the thing I want to say as we wrap up. I have seen and heard many sermons, many lectures from pastors, from Christians, from well-meaning people who have gotten a little off track when it comes to racial reconciliation. And what I typically hear from them are citations from authors of today and books that they're reading. They're teaching and preaching a doctrine of sociology and not a doctrine of theology. And what I mean by that is it's, it's important to read a lot of books. And it's important for us as Christians to read non-believing books, books written by non-believers, and books written by believers. It's important for us to read believers of today, and it's really important for us to believe believers of hundreds of years ago. We need to be well-read people, right? But what, I, what concerns me is a lot of leaders today are just reading people of today 
and they're formulating their theology based on sociology. Some of the things written are really good and helpful for us to learn. Others aren't. And as believers, we need to be able to decipher truth from lies. But here's the thing that I would tell us as Christ's covenant, as our church family. We need to focus here. We don't need to get so sidetracked with all these other books and the latest trendy book that's out there. They're helpful to read, don't get me wrong. But if you're only reading that and not reading this, your ideas might get swayed and you might begin to change the way that God intended for you to know what he intended for you to know. So what does the Bible teach about racial reconciliation? It teaches so much. So much. And I'm just going to mention four things. First, the Bible teaches that all human beings, regardless of ethnicity or culture, possess the same personhood and are made in the image of God. Every person, no matter what ethnicity they are, are created by, by God. And every person, male, female, people of different ethnicities, every person is equal in value and worth and in dignity. The second thing we know about racial reconciliation in the Bible is that God did create a world of diversity. Think about it. When he created the world, what did he create? He created nature. When you just go outside, you see the diversity of nature. He created animals. When you see the animals, you see a diverse group of animals. When he created man and woman, what do we see? Diversity. Men and women are a lot different, <laughs> aren't we? Then we, when you get to Genesis 10, this is before the Tower of Babel, by the way. When you get to Genesis 10, what does Noah and his family do? They, they land on the mountain, and then after that, they establish the table of nations. You begin to see diversity come out of the line of Noah. And then after Noah, we get to Genesis 11, and we see the Tower of Babel take place. God created a world of diversity. So we need to embrace diversity. We need to accept it. We need to embrace it. We need to celebrate it. If it's all from the Lord, right? If it's cultural norms and things that aren't from the Lord, we don't celebrate it. But if it's diversity from the Lord, we honor it, we celebrate it, right? So that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches diversity is a good thing. The third thing the Bible teaches is that even though today and for thousands of years of history, even though there are walls of hostility, and that could include historical traditions, it could include cultural attitudes, even though these walls of hostility exist and they alienate people based on ethnicity, Jesus Christ, what does he do? He reconciles people across all racial and ethnic lines and he commands us to love one another. So unfortunately, because of the sinful, fallen world we're living in, we have these racial tensions. And it's not just here in America. I was in Africa two years ago. There's racial tensions there. When you learn about South Africans, you know that there's racial tensions there. It's all over the place. But guess what? Jesus reconciles people. And he brings two different ethnicities together because he is peace. The fourth thing is that the only way for people of different races to be reconciled to one another 
It's through the saving love, grace, and power of Jesus Christ. That is the only way that will bring true reconciliation. It's what Paul termed in 2 Corinthians, the ministry of reconciliation. And guess who Jesus uses to bring about reconciliation in this world today? You and me, the church. The church is the chief mechanism to bring unity and to unify people and not divide. So Christ's covenant, please, I urge you, be people of unity and peace. Don't be people of division. Don't tear people down. Lift people up. That's what Jesus does. It's what he did. And it's what he's doing today through you and through me in his church. You know what's amazing about ethnic diversity? Is we see a picture of what heaven will be like in Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In heaven, we see a picture of whites, of blacks, of Hispanics, of Asians, of Indians. We see people worshiping the Lord together in heaven. That's God's design from the beginning to the end. And it's a beautiful, most glorious picture that all of us should be excited about. And here's the good news. We can see glimpses of that reality today through his church. And church, we don't need to take a back seat because the church has fallen short in multiple ways. We need to be in the front seat, the driver's seat, promoting racial reconciliation. And we need to love people who are different than us, coming from different backgrounds, different ethnicities. We need to appreciate those backgrounds and ethnicities. We need to promote peace. Just as Jesus intends for this to happen in heaven, I believe he intends for it to begin to happen now. And we can lead the way. So as Jesus is peace, as he brought peace, and as he preaches peace, so he calls us to do the same.